would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18 is our study. Has been for a while. It shall continue to linger. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. We will pray and then we'll read 6 through 18. And see where God leads us. Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing us here together this day. Father, thank you that you have made us one in Christ. You have sealed us with your spirit. And Father, as we look at the glory of this new covenant... In the blood of Jesus Christ. Father give each of us ears to hear. Give each of us eyes to see. That we may comprehend. That we would stand in awe. Of what has been done. For each and every one of us. Help us father. To be full weight upon this. Help us father. To be overwhelmed by it. Help us, Father, to be ruled by it. To your praise, to your glory, in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 6. Who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use a great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds are hardened. For this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant... The same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is giving us here a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he is basically showing us that the New Covenant, in the person of the Holy Spirit, through the work, finished work of Jesus Christ, has a glory that abounds much more than the Old Covenant. Okay, when you think about the Old Covenant, you can say with the Old Testament. 
You can say the New Testament. The Old Covenant, when you look at it, is a law, and it's based in three parts. One is the civic side of the law that set Israel apart from all other nations. Second part of it is the moral part of the law. That's the one that you and I know as the Ten Commandments. The third part of it is the ceremonial side of it, which was through the priesthoods and sacrifices and feasts and, and celebrations and rituals and all the rest of it. So now we look at it and we say, okay, here's this old one, which had glory. When Moses was in the presence of God receiving the law, he would come down and reflect the glory of God. But he says, now you have the new covenant. What the old was always a picture of, now you have the reality of. Okay? Let me try to be as explicit about this as I can. I do not want to beat around the bush. I do not want you to think, you. what does he mean by that? What I'm about to say in this time is exactly what I mean to say in this time. You do not believe me, I will let you see my notes and you will see that I wrote it down beforehand. The love of the external kills the inner life and crucified Christ. Religion killed Christ. Because Christ's emphasis on the spiritual life, it, his life rebukes the ceremonies of the scribes and of the Pharisees and of the priests. Stephen went the way of Christ. The first man martyred for belief in Jesus Christ. He rebuked the Pharisees and their religiosity, their system, their method. Now, do you understand that the Pharisees' religion was based on what? The Bible. And yet Christ confronted that and they killed him. Stephen confronted that and they killed him. Paul turned from being a persecutor, persecuting Pharisee who was rejoicing at the death of Stephen. And he took Stephen's path. Jesus and Stephen fought the letter of the law of the Pharisees. Paul is fighting it in the church. And I call it the chains of the letter, the do's and the do nots, external ceremonies and rituals kill and have killed spiritual Christianity. Jesus, please hear me. The one hope for mankind is put in jeopardy. When we try to destroy the spiritual Christianity with external religion. Okay? The bondage of legalism chains us from the freedom of spiritual Christianity. Verse 6 says, We are ministers of this new covenant, of a better covenant. 
Paul wants the Corinthians, Paul wants you and I to understand that a true servant, a true minister, a true preacher, a true prophet will proclaim New Testament truth, not the old. Listen, Satan's most effective deception, the best one he's ever had, is religion. Please understand, Satan's religion is not Satanism. Satanists embarrass him. They're silly. They're goofy. He wants you to work at your salvation. If I dress appropriately, if I don't buy certain things, if I don't watch this TV, and heaven forbid rock and roll, if I do these things on an outward way, then you have bought Satan's deception. You need to understand something about Satan. Satan is not with horns, a pitchfork, and a tail. Okay? He doesn't have... uh, He doesn't force you to puke green pea projectile vomiting and twist your head and all of these other goofy shows that you see on television or at the movies. He doesn't do any of those. The Bible says Satan is disguised as an angel of light. The Bible says he was the single most beautiful creature. Do you understand that? He's attractive. He will lure you. He will draw you in. In fact, Satan and all of the fallen demons are of darkness. They are of damnation. You have to understand this. And yet they will describe it as what? Light. This is biblically based. And they dress it. This damnation, this darkness is dressed in religion. Do you understand? And I'm not talking about just Catholics and Orthodox. I'm talking about in the Protestant church today. Satan designs a religion. Satan designs a system that cannot save. It only damns people. And yet, he does it clothed in salvation. It is is one of these things that All is well between them and God. I had a friend a number of years ago who was involved in in, in a drunk driving accident. My friend was the drunk. Okay. Killed uh, a mother and a daughter and crippled uh, the, the son and the aunt was crippled. Okay. She was in the process of having her license revoked for drunk driving. When she had the accident, this was her second one. She hadn't even gone to court with the first one. She had no insurance and was driving a car that did not belong to her. Okay. She was sentenced to 65 years consecutive. Okay. And she was young. She was 
late 20s. Okay? And I remember talking to her. And, and she felt bad about it. Don't get me wrong. Duh. Okay? But she made a statement to me that I have heard repeated over and over and over and over again. I have made my peace with God. That sounds great, doesn't it? Do you understand the damning error of that statement? I got news for you people. God could care less whether you're at peace with him. The question is, is God at peace with you? But that is how subtle the lie is. All is well between them and God because I have made peace with God. Really? Satanic religion of ceremony, the satanic religion of rituals and self-righteous works. It's the religion of performance. It's the religion of human efforts. It's the religion, and you'll know this term, of the sacraments. If I do this and this and this and this, then God is well pleased. And all of these sends people to a godless eternity. And the people are deceived about their real spiritual condition. Okay? Let me share with you. On the planet Earth right now, okay, there are two religions. Entire planet Earth. Two religions. Okay? One is the religion of grace through faith in Christ alone. Period. I came to the realization I was separated from God. I was an enemy to God. I was a sinner headed for hell. And I beg for mercy at the cross of Christ. That's one. Everything else is a part from Christ. It's false. It's damning. It's deceptive. And it's all based on the same thing. You pleasing God. I, I was questioning myself a number of months ago. Well, it's been a little longer than that. How could a mother, okay, how could you get a mother, okay? Okay, now, I'm, you know what I'm talking about, a, a parent, to sway their child, I don't care the age of the child, to strap a bomb on themselves, mom, tells the child to strap a bomb on themselves, go into a marketplace and explode it. How do, how do you do that? Right? But do you know why? Do you know why a parent can do that? Very simple. The only guarantee in Islam, guaranteed, 
salvation is if you die as a martyr. But if I as a parent allow my child and direct my child in how to do that because of their sacrifice, I will be saved. Okay, and I don't have to worry about it. That's how you do it. Why? Send your son, your daughter. They blow themselves up. And by their act, I am saved. That other religion that exists is that a person can be made right with God through an external effort. Through some moral activity. Through some ceremony. And it is a damning deception. That engulfs most of the world. Okay? Now remember, I wrote this stuff down. I'm not hiding this. I'm going to be straight up with you. I read an article from the Pope. He didn't send it to me. (laughs) We're not like on a first name basis. But the Pope says this, that the Buddhists worship the same God he worships. Okay? And that Buddhists should be considered as brothers. Okay? You know what? He goes on and says... He worships the same God that the Muslims worship. You know what? Amen. He's right. Absolutely, I agree with that emphatically. Mother Teresa has a place in Calcutta. It's called the Home of the Sick and Dying. And if you go visit that place, it is a, a huge compound, actually, where people who have been forbidden to live and are going to die, and they put them in, it's sort of like a, a hospice on steroids. One of the things that will amaze you about that place, if you happen to go visit it, when you go in there, you will see on every wall pictures of Hindu gods. And they're vile little creatures. They're... they're They're nasty things. But they're in all the rooms. But what is her background? Catholicism, which would say what? We're all worshiping the same God. Here's the reason. It is because it is a religion of ceremony. It is because it is a religion of human achievement. There are two religions. Christ's achievements and man's achievements. And I don't care whether you hang Mormon on it, Jehovah's Witness on it, Roman Catholic on it, Russian Orthodox on it, Greek Orthodox on it, Hindu on it, Buddhist on it, whatever you hang on it, it is your achievement to get to God. Self-achievement righteousness. And it is all achieved through some kind of a ceremony all through rituals, sacraments. 
Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox Church have more in common with non-Christian religious religion than with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I was talking to Dave at the welcoming time. wanted to know about Russian Orthodoxy. And I have been to several of their churches. Uh, and then I went to a museum, which I thought was fascinating. And uh, you can see all of, they have popes too. And you can see all of their goofy-looking hats, and I shouldn't say goofy, but they are. I wouldn't wear one. But anyway, uh, robes and, and clothing and all this other stuff, and all of their writings of their icons, okay? And vast rooms of literature. You know what's amazing about it? I mean, this is huge, huge building. Not one Bible. How do you say to that? Religion of external works, religion of ceremony, of ritual, of performance, and it's horrifyingly dangerous. And it is in the evangelical church today. You don't believe me? Can you show me in the Bible where it says, walk an aisle, say a prayer, and you'll be saved? Our Sunday school class this morning, I was talking about how do we really understand the awesomeness of salvation? If you don't believe me, go read Ephesians 1. We don't look at our salvation as awesome. Most people that I see today in the church have come to salvation because my kids were acting up. My spouse was acting up. I lost my job. I lost my house. I wrecked my car or my dog died or something and therefore God would you help me out it becomes the religion of what works you walked an aisle I asked Jesus I accepted Jesus I received Jesus really can you show me that I can show you where the publican beat on his chest and cried, Please have mercy on me, a sinner, God. I haven't seen that. Not in the church. See, when I look at the old covenant, it crushed me to say, You know what? God hates you. Do you? I use those words carefully. God wasn't displeased with you. God hated you as a sinner. He hates sin so much. He killed his son to make it right. Paul has been fighting in this church for two years. He had been growing this church, protecting this church. And you know what? For the most part, much had gone well, at least theologically. There were sin problems, but let's be realistic. Even in this church, there's probably a few sin problems. Okay, but for those of you who have been together for a while, we kind of got our theology on the right track. But some Jewish people had come in and they believed that you were saved in Christ. But you must keep 
the old covenant ceremonies and rituals. You have salvation by Christ plus. Paul says, no. No. It is not the new covenant and the old covenant. It is the new covenant and it is the new covenant alone. Salvation by acts of circumcision? Ceremony? Ritual? Salvation by mechanics? By works? Listen, they always, always, always have through history pollute the purity and simplicity of the gospel. See, in this text, verses 6 through 18... I see what every faithful pastor has to do. I protect the people from satanic deception that comes in the form of false religion. Listen, Satan is subtle enough. Please hear me well. Satan is subtle enough to even embrace them under the name of Christianity if he has to, if it fits his purpose. You know what? In just my ministry life, I've been a senior pastor here for about 16 or 17 years, something like that. I have watched Roman Catholicism go from calling themselves Catholics to calling themselves Christians. I have watched the Mormon church, who were the church of Latter-day Saints, have now called themselves Christian. Mitt Romney's thinking about running for president, and he is a Mormon. He is a temple Mormon. That calls himself a Christian. John F. Kennedy would not call himself a Christian. He called himself a Catholic. Well, what happened? Why now? Because the subtlety of the deception is such that it fits our enemy's purpose. Listen, let me tell you something about deception. When, when, when we call Satan the follower of lies, okay, do you understand something about liars or deceivers? This, this may stun you, so hold on tight. Do you understand that people who want to deceive don't stand up and announce what they're saying is a lie? Did you know that? That's amazing to me. I'm not going to stand up and say, follow me. I'm a false teacher. When I think about the thing as a pastor, there's two things that I fight moment by moment. One is false teaching and sin. If the teaching is right, it guards against sin. Now, if you have existing sin and you're sitting over here in your sin, then you tend to want to be deceived. Let me validate my sin, right? They go hand in hand. And a deceiver doesn't stand up and say, I would like to pronounce you today a lie that I have ordained. God hasn't. All true servants, all true ministers that God has made of the new covenant understand Christ's blood and must warn people about the deception. 
no matter whether it has the label of Christianity or not. I don't care what you call it. We must reject all efforts to pollute the gospel by works and ceremonies and rituals of any kind. Methods and systems are an anathema to the simplicity of Christ. Paul shows that the New Testament replaces the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And he wants you and I to see that the Old Covenant is obsolete. The Old Covenant could never save you. Nowhere in the Old Covenant does it say, do this and you will be saved. The Old Covenant contributes absolutely nothing to salvation. The New Covenant even saved the people who lived during the Old Covenant. With that, I want... I had a meeting this week where I met with a professor. Okay, Denver Sim. Okay, I'm not going to say his name. I'm praying for his repentance. How are you saved before the cross? That was my simple question. Now, there was a lot more dialogue. We were talking about the playoffs and a few other odds and ends. But, okay. How are you saved before the cross? Okay. How was Malachi saved? That's what I want to know. You know what he said? By works of the law. I about fell over. This guy is conservative evangelical. He believes the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I'm like, why aren't you reading it? Because I'm not a theologian. I'm not a professor. I do not have the gift of knowledge. Some would even question whether he has even the gift of wisdom. Okay. Closest thing to that would be smart Alec. Okay. So. With that feeble thought. I went to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. For this reason. He. Okay. Who's he? Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit. Offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. That's the question. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression. That were committed when and where? Under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. The glory of the new covenant is so massive, it saved those who died under the old covenant. I'm not a theologian. That was not that hard for me to find. I went to my strongest concordance and I went and found new covenant. And right there it was. It was like, whoa, that was hard. The death of Christ provided redemption for the transgressions committed by the people, the sins committed by the people who lived under the first covenant. 
I'm thinking that without a lot of interpretation, exegetical, hermeneutical things going on right there, that is a real clear text. People under the old, before Christ was ever born, before Christ ever died and rose again, were saved by the work of Christ. Christ, because of his perfect sacrificial death for sin, became the mediator of a new, of a better covenant. Only way a person could ever come to God was to have the penalty for their sin paid in full by a death. It had to be a perfect offering to pay the penalty for sin. That's why God hates sin. The payment Jesus made by dying as a substitution for all who would ever believe, who had ever believed, and repented in that age. Did you hear what I said? You say you believe and you do not have repentance. You are deceived. If I truly believe, then I will change. And I watch people who say, well, I really believe. I really believe. I remember a guy who was a drug dealer, a major drug dealer, and he carried a Bible with him everywhere he went. For what? Why don't you carry a rabbit's foot? Well, I believe. You know what James says? The demons believe. And they're smart enough to be scared to death. <laughs> you know, I know a whole bunch of humans who believe, but they're not scar- smart enough to be scared. He is the mediator. He is the only mediator between man and God. And what's really cool is... He mediates so well, he brings man and God together and he brings them together forever. He accomplished in one offering what all of the old covenant offerings could never, ever accomplish. His death took the place for redemption and it was paid in full. Sinners reconciled, brought back together with God forever. Sin. Whose sins? This text says those committed under the first covenant. I'm really not sure how people can confuse that. But if you have seminary professors who are confused about it, then understand, do you understand what a seminary professor does? He trains pastors. And if they don't have it right, guess what? The pastors don't have it right. Guess what? The congregation doesn't have it right. The old covenant saints who were saved were saved because they had a messianic hope. You know what? Many of them. You ever thought about this? God speaking of King David. 
All right. God, speaking of King David, said he was a man after God's own heart. That's pretty impressive. For an adulterer and a murderer. You know what? And, and you know what? There were many under the old covenant who, who tried to obey the law. There are many in, maybe even in this church today who are trying to obey the law. And you know what I will tell you? That is extraordinarily noble. It's useless. But bless your hearts. It's noble. We missed the point. The only thing that saved Old Testament believers was the provision of Christ Jesus. The death of Christ Jesus. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Let me, I hope you'll understand my terminology. The death of Christ Jesus was retroactive to cover the past. I mean, I don't have any other way. I remember when a certain politician came into power and he made tech taxes retroactive. And I thought, huh, well, I hope that don't get out. And they start doing it on a regular basis. But the death of Jesus Christ paid in full retroactively those in the past. Let me show you something else. Comes out of what I call the Gospel of Romans, chapter 3. Verses 24 and 25. This is an amazing thing. This is amazing. Because because verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? We've all heard that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a, my favorite word, propitiation in His, it's so hard for me to say, His blood through faith, That was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Okay. Now, I told you guys several months ago when we started this text, some of this is going to turn into like a a lecture uh, of theology. But let me tell you something. If you don't get the gospel right, do you understand the problem? Do you really understand the problem? You're going to hell. And you will be graciously leading others to hell. So that's why I'm kind of belaboring this thing. Because I see the church today has completely missed this. So anyway. The church is confused about this. And I can't think of anything more important than getting the gospel right. Okay, and you would think that 2,000 years out of the birth of the church, we would at least have this thing nailed down, and we seem to have completely lost it. All right, we are looking in this text at being justified. This is what we call justification. Oh, there's them theology words again. Gee, many crickets starting to sound like some kind of cemetery thing. All right, listen, you'd better know what justification is. That means you stand before the high court of God. You are ruled not guilty. That's justification. If you do not have that, you are not saved. 
I don't care how nice a person you are. I don't care what charity you've helped. I don't care if you even helped the little old woman cross the street every time you could catch her. I don't care. If you do not stand just before a holy God, then you are condemned forever. So if you don't like that word, you have a bigger problem. Justification is a gift by grace through redemption provided in Christ. It is a gracious gift. You got that? God, then look what he says here. Whom God. Now look what he says. You know, I've had this. I do this every once in a while to people. And and so you guys all know my trick now. Who killed Christ? The Jews or the Gentiles? God did. See, it's a trick. God did. Why? Because there had to be the penalty of sin paid in full, period. All right, look what he says. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, as a substitution. Do you know what that word propitiation means? Literally, if you take it back to the original language. It's fascinating. Mercy seat. Kind of cool, huh? Who is my mercy seat? Well, it ain't on no box that Indiana Jones found. Christ is your mercy seat. But look what he says. As a propitiation in his blood through faith. Okay, this was to demonstrate what? His righteousness. Because in the forbearance, because in the patience of God, he what? Passed over the sins previously committed. Well, what sins previously committed? The previously committed sins before the cross were the old covenant. He put Christ on display as a covering for the sin through his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, please understand the text. He's not talking about Christ's righteousness. He's talking about God's righteousness. He had passed over the sins under the original covenant in patience because he knew what his son was going to do. His atoning work was so massive, he saved Abraham, Adam and Eve, Noah. Noah's kids, all of those who were looking forward to the atoning work of Christ, though they didn't even understand it. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is absolutely crucial. This is absolutely crucial. He passed over sin of those who believed in him prior to. To Christ. And it was a righteous act. A right act. 
God would listen, please hear this. God now hear this and hear my complete sentence because I don't want you to run out. All right. God would be unjust to just ignore their sins. Do you understand that? That would make him an unjust God. Can a holy God ignore sin? Where's the sacrifice for sin he's always talking about? Where's the justice for sin? Where is the right standard against sin that is required by God's law? Listen, until Christ came to make the perfect atoning sacrifice, it would have seemed unjust of what God was doing. But God knew that Christ would pay the penalty in full, that it would even pay for the Old Testament. Those condemned under the law. God, in this text, do you understand that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was God demonstrating His righteousness? That freaks me out. To show it, he had passed over sin that had been previously committed. Why? Because I am going to illustrate to you my righteousness by crucifying my beloved son. He had passed over him until he put Christ publicly on display. Hanging On a cross. See. You can look at Christ being crucified. And say. He is a just God. That should freak us all out. He is so committed to his law. That he put on the cross. His own beloved son. I watch people play, play church. And I think, do you not understand the seriousness of what you are playing with? Well, I go to church when I feel like it. Twice a year, the two high holy days, Christmas and Easter. You know, if there's a great a national tragedy, tragedy, I might run down and hear what the preacher's got to say. So I don't have to think about something. Or you know what? Me and my wife, we just ain't getting along real well. Maybe I'll go ask God for some help here. Do you realize the sin that God laid out as his righteous standard is so important to him, he crucified his own beloved son? That's how serious it is. So we understand that passing over sin in the past was temporary because the sacrifice was to come. The blood of Christ was to come. The old covenant, they believed in whatever God revealed about himself. If you go through the Old Testament, you will see there is degrees of understanding. Remember, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness because of the work of Christ's coming. Now, let me ask you a question. How big was Abraham's Bible? 
But he believed God. Well, when did he repent? He was told to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. That was the most God-forsaken pagan culture on the planet. He says, leave. All right. Where do you want me to go? Just leave. All right. Just like a man don't ask for directions. He just took off. Took his family. We're out of here. Why? God said to. Try that once. We're getting out of here, dear. Why? God told me to. Well, where are we going? He didn't tell me. Okay. Follow that nutcase. When we repent, we cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of God. And it is he alone who could forgive sin through his son, Jesus Christ. See, the Old Testament saints, they knew in their heart that God would provide a perfect sacrifice. Remember the guy Jonah, the great fisherman, prophet, right? Remember Jonah? Do you know why he did not want to go to the Ninevites? They were nasty people. I mean, they were... The Ninevites used to have a thing that when they were going to bless a new building, you know how we put a cornerstone in? They would put a live fetus in there and it would, I don't know what, keep something away. All right? They were, they were very vile people and they liked attacking the Jews. Okay? And God says, well, I want you to go up there and call them to repentance. Now, Jonah knew that if God said, I'm sending a prophet to call to repentance, then God had a plan. And what was the plan? They would repent. And what in the world would... I don't want to be no part of their salvation. And Jonah says, I'll go fishing. Why? Because he knew that if God was bringing his word to bear on the people's sins, then God was moving ahead to what? Bring them to repentance and bring them to salvation. You know what? There's going to be some guys from Nineveh in heaven. You ever thought about that? And they were some nasty people. You want to get a history lesson that'll shake you to your boots. Uh, the men of, uh, man, them is some nasty people. And yet some of them got saved. Why? Because they repented. We hate to hear that. How do you get saved? Repent. Start there. Why? Believe God hates sin. God was patient. Until a sacrifice was made, he passed over sin of the truly repentant, believing people. Since the old covenant never could save, salvation is always by grace, always by faith, always through what Jesus Christ did in the new covenant. And you would think that by this time we would know that. So, the new covenant alone saves do you see why its glory is more massive than the old covenant the glory of the new covenant is so massive that it saved those under the old covenant why in the world would people want to observe the old covenant as part of our salvation that is insane 
External works get you nothing but condemnation. But if you do it hard enough and long enough, you can deceive yourself, think you've achieved something. The new covenant gives life. Verse 6. The new covenant produces righteousness. Verse 7, 8, and 9. And the new covenant is permanent. Verse 7, 10, and 11. And next week we'll look that it brings hope. But you had to see what the hope of the old covenant saints was in is the same thing you should have your hope in. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the awesome things you do in our lives. Lord, I praise you for the new covenant. I praise you that you have bought us and paid for us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Father, help us. Help us to bow to the reality of this truth. That it isn't by anything that we could ever do, ever want to do. But it is Christ and Christ alone. Father, we are all sinners. At some point we were separated from you. And yet now we have a mediator of a new covenant who has drawn us together. The person of Christ that now man and God are literally one. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name. Amen.